that I too am bouncing on an exercise ball like the laboring person I'm watching is completely lost on me because I'm eight years old and I've got my face inches away from the little TV set in my bedroom. The volume is turned down so low that it might as well be off. And I'm vaguely aware that I'm not supposed to be watching what's reflected in my open wide eyes. But what's making me squirm is actually this feeling that I don't want to be watching it. Because watching it is frightening and vaguely disgusting to me on some level that I've not yet undergone enough psychotherapy to understand. At the same time, my viewing seems to be satisfying not a curiosity, but more of a compulsion. This nebulous need. Now, as I grow up, I will learn that for me, curiosity and compulsion are bound. They're braided together in such a way that it looks nice, but it would require a frustrating degree of patience and precision to untangle, which is probably no surprise to you if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis. Now, when I was a little girl, this was a time in my life when I was arguably much more deeply versed in braiding than I am now, and at that point I only knew that my choice of after-school programming was, I don't know, I guess kind of an attempt to understand the first paramount truths of human experience. So things like kissing and making a deposit at the bank. These were things that we just associate with grown-upness. And I suspect that I will have these experiences at some point, but I can't yet imagine them with any substantial degree of detail. And at that point in my life, the future is just these very fine sketches that are routinely smudged by where my little uncertain hands kind of pause and drag themselves over what I've innocently tried to map out. They don't have any color because there's an entire spectrum that I'm not aware of yet. And I know this, and I am impatiently seeking the vibrance that I think exists on a plane where adults live. One that, if television is to be believed, seems to contain a lot of shades of red. Now, I was always a child who would gamely charge ahead, but only after I had spent considerable time mentally situating myself in whatever situation I was going to be getting myself into. And this habit established itself quite young, practicing my life as thoroughly as possible before I would be called upon to physically embody and mentally present in a necessary performance of existing. Now, I will learn that this tendency, while it is a core truth of who I am is an intensity that the world is not often empathetic to. And I will grow up to feel as though I'm never really sure at what point I'm allowed to stop proving that I'm alive and just kind of live. I don't believe that the choice of seating for these TV viewings, while I do see the parallels in retrospect, had any kind of subconscious intention or subtext. It was actually just a practical choice because I didn't have any other kind of furniture that would let me be eye level with these heaving people whose 15 minutes of fame would involve them basically being spread eagle on a show that was on TLC called A Baby Story. I wanted to stare into the unknown abyss of existence between their legs, and as it so happened, that rubber exercise ball was really the only thing that facilitated this particular vantage point. Now, you may or may not be familiar with this show, 
or at least you may not be aware that you're familiar with this show. So in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, but I grew up in the U.S. and this is where I remember watching it, the show called A Baby Story started airing around 1998. And as far as I know, there is actually still some kind of iteration of it on TLC today, which was supposed to be the learning channel. And for a long time, it was the learning channel. And now I think it's more like toddlers and tiaras and children being exploited, which, you know, I think it kind of started with this. But anyway, we'll get to that. So when this show first appeared, you have to understand that in the 1990s, if you're a younger listener, so I'm saying like, if you're not, if you're like younger than a millennial, I don't know if you can really comprehend the fact that this whole idea of like people putting their whole lives out there on the internet or on television or really public, it was a very different kind of thing. I mean, we didn't, there wasn't this level of like everybody becomes a celebrity, everybody gets notoriety. That wasn't quite there yet. This whole idea of like reality TV, reality social media, this this wasn't there. So when a baby story first started, it was really unique because it challenged the precedent of privacy that had really defined life experiences. So this was way before social media obliterated that. This was the late 90s and it was also really going to be a long time before anyone would even think about or conceptualize the concept of live streaming, the labor and delivery or posting Snapchat updates from the moment their baby takes its first breath kind of thing. But a baby story gave parents to be this once in a lifetime opportunity to share their experiences, not just with the people in their lives, but, you know, the people in their network, but they could actually do this on a network. So as far as reality television went, a baby story offered something dramatic and engaging that still felt kind of genuine and real because it wasn't so much about creating drama where there wasn't any which is kind of the case with reality tv as it exists in today's market but this was really more about heightening the tension that inherently existed in our lives which you could argue is like high art in documentary filmmaking now of course i did not understand the nuances of this as a kid I was just drawn to it because the show tapped into several emerging fears that I had about life and exposed them to me in the rawest form allowed on daytime television. So I got the same satisfaction from being afraid and exhilarated by an episode of a baby story as I did by like reading the latest Goosebumps book. I kind of seemed to be developing the approach of facing my fears as a sport. So I had this like in it to win it mentality. Except when it came to a baby story, I was never quite sure what exactly I was scared of. Was I afraid of getting caught watching something that I felt like I shouldn't be? And actually, my mom did catch me a few times and was actually more confused than anything else. Like, I don't know. Was I afraid that I would see something that gave me more questions than answers? Was I afraid that I might get an answer to a question that was actually really disappointing? Was I scared that I was going to look upon this exciting marvel of existence and be like, I don't want to ever do this. I'm repulsed by this. Like, this doesn't matter to me. And thinking back on it now, a baby story was actually really tame compared to what would be available to a fear-driven, curious, and technologically savvy kid today. And I'm thinking about this because I have um, young children in my life, not mine, but um, you know, nieces and nephews, you know, around actually a little older than, than I was at this point. And I'm thinking about what they have access to it almost innately. And it terrifies me sometimes. Um, 
Because the thing is that when I was watching a baby story in the 90s at eight years old on TLC, you could be assured that the anatomy of relevance and even anything that was adjacently relevant was going to be censored. A practice which instilled in me, by the way, the sense that breasts and vaginas and and anuses were all going to be sexualized regardless of what capacity I was viewing them in and that to view it even accidentally in its most natural state was something that I needed to be ashamed of. And what was even more deeply shameful then was to watch a program where babies were born from pixels and then being fed from like blurred out breasts and then feel really cheated about it because that's not the truth. But anyway, besides that, kids today could see the real thing on YouTube quite effortlessly by comparison. And then they could stumble unwittingly across a number of confusing and traumatic visuals just by being passively engaged with the internet. And these sightings exist uh, along a spectrum of confusion and trauma that are inevitable, like, you know, thinking like, oh, I've I've seen this unidentified penis, to an illusion-shattering, sort of empowering vision of you know menstrual menstrual effluent <laughs> if you will on bed sheets or on um, sanitary napkins to these like deeply scarring situations where kids can go on youtube and see somebody get shot on a live feed so it's like a roulette in terms of what order kids will see these things in and i think some kids who are like i was at that age probably would be more likely to see them all in quick succession because we're just hardwired to seek out our fears without any fear, even if we should be afraid. Now, I'm thinking about back then. So my best friend has a son who's 10. And I think about what she was like at 8, 9, 10. And she was so tender. I mean, she couldn't even stand to see a stuffed animal on a shelf alone because it was like lonely. And now I think of her son, who's like 10, and he has, you know, these big eyes and fair hair, and he's just very gentle and kind. And I think about when he was in kindergarten, his screening, he was getting screened for kindergarten, and he was like docked points by the examiner because he didn't want to cut out a paper dinosaur with a pair of scissors. And on the ride home, my best friend asked him why he didn't do that task, because she knew he knew how to use scissors fine. And he said that he knew it was a test. But he was nervous because he didn't want to cut out the dinosaur because he might accidentally cut him and hurt him, which is exactly the same logic that his mother would have used at that age. And that's why she never joined me in these viewing parties for a baby story, because even if she'd wanted to, I wouldn't have let her because I was grappling with this secret shame attached to it in a way that I think were like my first attempts to relentlessly pursue my own truth without asking anybody else's opinion about it. Because I wasn't asking a parent or a teacher or a friend to explain this to me. I wasn't asking them to explain the world. Because without even asking, I felt like their answers just wouldn't have been enough. Because it was their answers arrived at through their perspectives. And I wanted to find my own. I was supposed to make sense that I saw fit to start this task at the very beginning at my beginning, at our, our collective beginning, to unravel this mystery of how I had manifested. And a baby story gave me this weird insight into what I wanted to know, almost permitting me a little bit of like voyeurism into my own history. Because I wanted to know what life had been like just before I got here, so that I would know if my arrival had changed anything. 
And as I watched a baby story season after season, I never grew bored of the fact that we all apparently were thrust into this realm in the same way. The details of our entrance were unique. The timing and location did not always go according to plan. But in the end, we all had this one lived experience in common. And I don't know, that was quite a doozy for a 10-year-old. And as I've entered adulthood, I've reflected on this experience of my youth increasingly. So back in like, I don't know, a couple years ago, they had like the 20th anniversary of a baby, sto- a baby story's debut. And I, I kind of revisited that little part of my childhood and picked at it. And what I found more compelling was putting it into the context of what my life is like now, how I grapple constantly with this balance of online and offline life. And at one, you know, I, as I mentioned in a few podcasts ago, I, you know, someone had asked if I'd written a book, if I was the person who wrote this book. And I, I did, I, I did write a book. And um, that was a big decision that I made at a too young of an age, kind of not dissimilar to watching a baby story at eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, and I had this choice to bind up my vulnerabilities in a book that anybody could read. And I didn't know if I was going to have the right to demand that any part of my life remain private after that. And I look around and I realize that it's not 1998, but there is nothing particularly revolutionary or bold about the fact that I shared the intimate details of my life with the world, especially with the internet. And today, live streaming your child's birth on social media is not really the rule, but it's certainly not unheard of. And social media is still shifting our concept of what constitutes private life and like family-only moments. And a baby story was an important cultural component of that shift, whether we realized it at the time or not, because it made us rethink what it means to keep something that we might have thought of as sacred, like the birth of a child, to and for ourselves. And that show wasn't just groundbreaking in television history, but kind of for us socioculturally. It was these early forays into reality TV that made us all reevaluate and kind of reckon with what our reality actually was. So even if we didn't have a camera crew documenting every moment of the early 2000s, by the end of that decade, we would witness the birth of social media aided by our increasingly portable and pocket-sized technology. And not only were we consuming content on demand, but we were also given the ability to create it on demand. An ability that kind of feels like a responsibility in response to the unpredictable nature of life. And in a way, it's made it more likely that we'll capture those precious moments. Because 20, 25 years ago, how many parents tried and failed to catch a child's first steps on tape for posterity because it was just taking too long to load up and hoist one of those camcorders up on their shoulder? You know, how many memories have been lost to us with just the silvery echoes of our moms singing to themselves, you know, I should have brought my camera. Like I lament many lost summer camp and school days memories because film got exposed to light or a disposable camera got put overboard out of a canoe, you know, sunk at the bottom of a lake for eternity. But then there are also plenty of memories that I'm relieved to know have been buried out in the backyard and forgotten in a rotted out tree house somewhere because there are just things that I don't want to remember. And I wonder sometimes if the privilege of allowing memories to necrose is one that my best friend's little boy and his friends won't have. Because after all, nobody would have ever known about my guilt-ridden, obsession-driven viewing of a baby story if I hadn't decided to talk about it. Because there's no record of it in a browsing history or a Google search because it didn't exist. And none of my questions in those years were bookmarked or downloaded anywhere. Nobody will ever have filmed me or photographed me bouncing on that exercise ball while I was watching this thing on television. 
And the immediacy and the deafness with which we can use tech to capture our lives creates opportunity, but it also invites obligation. So a baby story was an opportunity a family could take, but nobody had to. And nowadays, you don't need TLC to send a camera crew. You just need an iPhone and some Wi-Fi. And the question is no longer can we capture this, but must we? Just because we can immortalize a moment in time, does that mean that we have to? And if we do diligently log and chronicle every moment, are we obligated to share it? Not to compare, not even necessarily to brag or beg, but just to prove that we were here. Just to show the world that we're living in it. 